Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Mike Gunn of Truth Be Told. I'm excited to be talking with you today. It's been a minute since I have recorded a podcast um, just as a podcast. I spoke in a previous episode about the fact that I realized that I've posted a lot of messages that I've given for church as podcast episodes, and I don't want this to become just a repository for those kinds of messages. Um, Even though as I'm writing those, I do have this podcast in mind. I'm talking about stuff I want to talk about that I find interesting, that I hope is a benefit to people, not just in my congregation, but also that listen to this this project. So, But that being said, I am excited to be just sitting in my home recording an episode just for this, and I hope it's something that you enjoy. Today, what I wanted to talk to you about is a post that I've seen circulating on social media everywhere. And this is not something I normally do. Um, reaction videos or reaction podcasts are not really my style. But this one dealt in the Bible, it dealt in critical thinking, which um, this podcast is specifically geared towards doing, critical critical thinking about the text of scripture. And this post that I keep on seeing cropping up, it's not so much that I maybe have seen it um, actually posted four or five times, which that's a decent amount, but maybe not um, as ubiquitous as you know, you would think for me to actually record a whole episode on it. It's more so that I've seen it posted four or five times and then I've seen, you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of women responding to it or reacting to this post, giving it some sort of approval. Not that they approve it a hundred percent or anything, but it seems as if people are really, really appreciating this this Facebook post. And I find a problem with that because it really does not seem to think critically about the Bible. And so we're going to be going through this post today and kind of refuting uh, some of its claims and making the case for what we should think instead. And I want to apologize ahead of time because this really deals heavily in um, basically women in the Bible. And anytime a man decides to comment on women in the Bible or a post that a woman has made or whatever, there's bound to be sparks or fireworks or whatever. And I'm, I'm not intending to be disrespectful. I'm not intending to tear anyone or anything down. I'm more just saying, hey, here's a post that I've seen dealing with women in the Bible that seems on the surface to be valuable and uh, drawn directly from scripture. It seems to be doing exegesis but really it's doing a lot more eisegesis. It's really making a lot of claims that can't really be founded in the text. So that's what we're going to be going through. And the first thing I want to do to start off is just read the post. And I'm hoping it's something that you guys have seen before and will know how to respond to in the future, or at least might keep someone from posting it themselves. Um, And so that's my goal for today. So this is how the post goes Um, It says this, it's a little bit long, so I apologize for that. But it says, have you ever noticed how in the scriptures, men are always going up into the mountains to commune with the Lord? Yet in the scriptures, we hardly ever hear of women going to the mountains, but we know why, right? Because the women were too busy keeping life going. They couldn't abandon babies, meals, homes, fires, gardens, and a thousand responsibilities to make the climb into the mountains. It continues on and says, I was talking to a friend the other day saying that as a modern woman, I feel like I'm never free enough, free is in quotes there, for my responsibilities, never in a quiet enough space I want with God. Her response floored me. That is why God comes to women. This is the response from the woman that she was talking to. That is why God comes to women. Men have to climb the mountain to meet God, but God comes to women wherever they are. 
I've been pondering on her words for weeks and have searched my scriptures to see that what she said is true. God does indeed come to women where they are, when they are doing their ordinary, everyday work. He meets them at wells where they draw water for their families, in their homes, in their kitchens, in their gardens. He comes to them as they sit beside sick beds, as they give birth, care for the elderly, and perform necessary mourning and burial rites. Even at the empty tomb, Mary was the first to witness the resurrection. She was there because she was doing the womanly chore of preparing Christ's body for burial. In these seemingly mundane and ordinary tasks, these women of the scriptures found themselves face to face with divinity. So if, like me, you ever start to bemoan the fact that you don't have as much time to spend in the mountains with God as you would like, remember, God comes to women. He knows where we are and the burdens we carry. He sees us, and if we open our eyes and our hearts, we will see him, even in the most ordinary places and in the most ordinary things. He lives, and he's using a time such as this to speak to women around the world. So there's the post. That is the thing that we're going to be going through today. I'm not going to take it line by line because I'm, I think it's uh, it's pretty long, and I'm trying to keep this one a little bit shorter, um, really because I don't need to go into so much depth that I just tear apart every single thought. I think there is some validity to what's being said here. It's just that a lot of the surface claims that are acting as premises for this post are false. And when you start off with a false premise, you end up with wrong conclusions. So again, not that every single part of this is bad or that the intent is bad or that the motivation for whoever the original poster is bad, but we have to look at this from scripture because that is our litmus test for what truth is. And it's important because this person already claimed that they did search the scriptures um, to find out if this claim was true, that God meets women whereas men go to meet God. So let's just take a look at this then. Um, we're going to go through the first part, which is that uh, men are always going up into the mountains to commune with the Lord. That's the direct quote that's stated here. Um, but the problem with this is that it's it's just not true. Men are not always going up into the mountains to commune with the Lord. Sometimes this is the case, but it is certainly not always or even often the case. Um, if we go through some examples People that did go to the mountains to meet with God, you have Moses, Elijah, Jesus, just kind of off the top of my head. And obviously Jesus was God, so that's even a little bit of a different scenario. But then you have really faithful men who did not go to the mountains to meet with God, like Daniel or David or Gideon or Ezekiel. And it's interesting because when you start actually categorizing a list, um, a lot more people seem to not have gone up to a mountain or had this momentous meeting with God than actually did. And then even the ones that did go up to the mountains to meet with God certainly didn't go to meet him there every single time. Uh, God spoke to Elijah before he went up to the mountain. It was actually only in the times that Elijah was incredibly frustrated that you see him going up to the mountain that uh, Moses went up to as well. Jesus was God. I mean, a constant communication with the Father. And certainly there are times it says he went to the wilderness but or went to the wilderness to pray, but it doesn't seem like it's every single time that he prays or um, has to talk with God, he has to go up to this mountain. Um, I'm just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of the time when he's baptized and the heavens open up and the dove descends on him. And it seems like right there, God is uh, speaking about and to Jesus and, and to the people that are witnessing his baptism. But Jesus didn't have to go up some mountain in order to commune with him. So, 
premise number one does not seem to follow. And so already we can say, all right, well, at least part of this is untrue. It's not that mountains are never used, at least symbolically, right, to talk about ascending the mountain of the Lord. That's a that's a very heavy theme in the Old Testament. And so anytime someone communes with God, right, they have to go through this process of um, not physical ascension necessarily, but at least a, a symbolic ascension because he is high and mighty. He is lofty. Um, and so even to go from their state of sinfulness to purification to then being able to commune with him, you could say that symbolically, sure, they have to go up to a mountain, but it is not the same as this post is claiming where they have to kind of physically go away up into this place to commune with him. And I think the example of Gideon that I listed before is a really good one. Um, His story can be found in Judges 6. Um, Especially, this will make a little more sense as we keep on going through the post, because uh, this person is going to be claiming soon that God is meeting women where they are, but he meets men um, on the mountain. Or men have to go to the mountain, but women don't have time to go to the mountain because they have all these, um, you know, everyday duties. But in Judges 6, you see that true for Gideon as well. It says, now the angel of the Lord, this is starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So here we have Gideon, um, Israel's being attacked by Midianites and they're coming in and basically either burning or stealing all of their crops. So Gideon has to be a little sly and he's taking his crops to the wine press in order to thresh them there where the Midianites won't look for him or his crops. And so he's doing this everyday duty of an Israelite man. And here the Lord appears to him. It doesn't seem like Gideon was seeking him. It doesn't seem like he had to go up into the mountains to go and seek the Lord's counsel or audience or anything like that. God comes to him and Even in this situation, it's interesting because not only is Gideon busy, but he's not even looking for God, right? I mean, God asked him to go and do all these things that he's a little, he has a little bit of trepidation about it. And um, it doesn't seem like he was seeking God or, or looking to have an audience with him. And still God met him where he was amidst his menial duties. So this is an important point, not just to say that, um, men don't have to ascend some mountain to commune with God or that only men had time to do this, men also had responsibilities. But this is going to become really important when we go to the other side and see the reasoning this this person who posted this gives for why women don't go up the mountain. So already premise one of men, we see men all the time going up the mountain to commune with God, does not seem to hold any weight. So now let's move on to the next one. So the next premise that's stated here is that we hardly ever see women going to the mountains to commune with God. And then it offers a reason for this. And it doesn't just offer like a potential reason. It says, but we know why, right? And then explains that women are busy and they have household responsibilities and children to take care of. And while we might not see hundreds of examples of women going up to the mountains to commune with God, I think the reasoning is really flawed. I think we'll see flaws in the first premise that women never go up to the mountains to commune with God, but I think uh, especially the reasoning here of why they don't is flawed because 
It says they're too busy to trek up the mountains. They had responsibilities. And we kind of just covered this with the story of Gideon, who was very clearly busy doing his everyday duties as God approached him. But also at the example of the prophets, how many of them do we see taken away from their normal work in order to go and do what God asked of them? Um, we have Amos, who was a shepherd, Elisha, who plowed his father's field, the apostles were fishermen, and then just kind of one that I thought was kind of funny was that Jeremiah was chosen, and when he was chosen, he was pretty busy being a fetus. So um, I don't know that you can get much busier than that or much more occupied than that, but God chose him when he was in the womb, it says. It says he knew him in the womb and then came to him when he was a young man, possibly a small, small boy, and called him there. So the point there just being that Jeremiah had stuff going on in his own life, whether it was when he was first known by God or when he was actually called as a young man, um, he was busy doing things. And yet still, God singled these people out from their everyday lives and called them to do work for him. And then, so in addition to this, this statement about hardly ever seeing women go up to the mountain to talk with God, I think also this is not true. So not only is the reasoning untrue that, well, women were just so much more busy doing everyday things that God would come to them and wouldn't expect anything, any of them to come to him. Um, we see that with men, they were often busy doing things and God called them out. So um, I think the reasoning is not good because no one's ever too busy to, you know, talk with God, I think, um, especially if God is the one calling. Um, but also the whole premise in the first place is wrong because some of the most prominent women in the Bible we see going up to high places or mountains. Um, for example, Deborah, who if you were to just make a list of women in the Bible, she would be one of the top ones. And in Judges 4, we can read her story. Judges 4, in, starting in verse 4 here, it says, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So she's, you kind of get this picture. Um, I'm not saying this is what she did, but I just picture her like underneath a tree on top of a hill. And that's all she does all day. I'm sure she did other things. But this is a woman who is clearly seeking counsel from God to lead uh, as a judge in this nation, to settle disputes of people, acting as a prophet, speaking on behalf of God to the people, and look where she is. She's up on a high uphill uh, in the hill country of Ephraim. So there's one very prime example of a person literally in the hills or in the mountains uh, communing with God. But another one that came to my mind as soon as I read this post is Hannah, uh, the mother of Samuel. And her story is found in 1 Samuel 1. Now, um, you'll remember that Hannah was barren. Uh, it says that the Lord had closed her womb. And her husband, though, Elkanah, always went up from year to year to offer sacrifices at Shiloh where the tabernacle was. And it says that Hannah went with him. So we'll pick up this story in um, verse 4. It says, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. 
And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Now we know that the rest of the story, um, while she's at Shiloh one of these years, she finishes eating, goes off by herself and weeps and gives a beautiful prayer to which the high priest hears and comes and says that her prayer is going to be fulfilled after thinking she was drunk. That's a whole different story. That's also really, really interesting. Um, if you want more information, Michael Heiser does a really, really great exposition of First Samuel that I just thought really illuminated this whole first chapter. But anyways, you see Hannah here, and she's going up to Shiloh to commune with God. Now, Shiloh, um, it's not like Jerusalem where it's up on a mountain or anything like that, but uh, if you look up anything about the terrain of that area, the entire area is surrounded by small mountains and the terrain is rugged. So at Shiloh itself, where the tabernacle was, um, or where it was believed to be, there is this level plain, but it is surrounded by this mountainous range. And um, even there at Shiloh, it's pretty rugged until you get to this one spot that is literally just the size that it would have been to house the tabernacle there. So that's pretty interesting. That's part of why they think that they found the um, historical site of Shiloh. But she had to go up and through the mountains to get to this place. And it's not until this place that she hears her prayers answered. So for examples of women that we do see going up a mountain, Hannah and Deborah are incredibly important examples because of the women listed in the Bible, they're some of the first to come to mind. So again, I think the second premise that um, we don't see women going up the mountain to commune with God is false. And then I think the reasoning saying that, well, um, women were just too busy and so God met them where they were. I think God interacts with men and women pretty much the same. I mean, sometimes he calls them out uh, to go somewhere different and sometimes he meets them where they are. So this is true of everybody. But so that, that's kind of the second premise that I think is also really, really flawed. And it doesn't take a lot of deep study to find where it's flawed. I think the problem with this whole post is that it sounds nice, right? It, it sounds good. Um, it's very validating to us as busy people as we go through our lives and we find, oh, I didn't you know, make time for God today, or I didn't do as much to talk with him, or my prayer life is starting to suffer, but it's okay. God knows where I am. He meets me where I'm at. And in a way, that's true. He does meet us where we are. He does have grace for us, but it's not that he's just okay with us kind of slowly cutting him out of our lives. But um, we'll go into that in just a minute. Uh, I do want to go through one more point, though. And that point is kind of just an overall refutation of this entire uh, topic, because really, we're kind of working in symbolism here, right? Um, this person that posted this is looking through biblical examples of people and saying, well, the men went up the mountain to pray with God or to talk with God. The women never really did that. We've already seen those two things to be um, very much less founded in scripture. I wouldn't say false because sometimes men do go up mountains and sometimes women are met where they are, but that's just only one part of the story. Um, but overall, I wanted to refute this because we're talking in symbolism where the mountain here is then used as a symbol for this idea of alone time with God or um, dedicated, separated time out to God that 
men have time for and women don't because of their household duties or, or what have you. And then this idea of women being met where they are uh, becomes kind of symbolic of time with God that you get um, just in your everyday activities. So it might not be um, a half hour, an hour of prayer or whatever dedicated strictly to that, but throughout your day, you might say a quick prayer to God. And the idea here is that God understands that and he shows grace to you and meets you where you are when your life is busy and difficult. And I'm not going to say that he doesn't do that. Again, I just mentioned before, he does have grace for us. He does love us and, you know, want as much time as we can give him. Um, And, you know, he's not limited in his connection to us by the moments that we get on our knees in a dark room and pray. I truly believe that we can connect with God in our everyday lives, especially I think meditation is severely undervalued, um, where you can kind of be going through some monotonous tasks, but you're, you're physically able to get them done. But then mentally, you can really, really focus your mind on God and, and his word. And I would never want to say that God cannot meet us in those places because he's, he's not limited to just the place where we go and seek him. And this is the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for us, right? He tore that veil into the Holy of Holies. And now we have access to God's throne um, every time we pray and in any place that we are. And that is an amazing fact that I don't want to take away from what this post is intending to talk about, even though they're talking about it in an unbiblical way. So finally, this, this last refutation, I want to point out that over and over again, we see this example of God also calling women out of the thing that they were doing so that he can work with them. Um, some of the examples that came to my mind are Ruth, or Esther, some of the biggest names of women in the Bible, Ruth was not even able to do her primary work that God called her to until she left Moab and came back to Israel or came to Israel with Naomi. So she had to get up and move towards God. Then, of course, you have Esther, who uh, wasn't even in Israel or Judah, but was a queen in a foreign nation. And it wasn't until she was in this place that God could use her for the work that he had for her. And I think that's a really, really interesting one, especially because in this post, this person states at the very end, um, let me see if I can find it. They say he lives, speaking of God, and they say, and he's using a time such as this to speak to women around the world. And so it's interesting that she quotes Esther in this post but doesn't seem to know the story of Esther because while he did work with Queen Esther in this foreign land, which is fascinating and amazing because of uh, this kind of pervading idea in ancient Israel that God was kind of tied to the land in a way. Um, And you see this all throughout scripture where like the Ark of the Covenant gets taken away and it's like, oh no, our God has left. And they, they really tied him to some of these physical objects. But one of those was the land itself. This was the promised land. And so anytime it got taken over, it was like, oh no, our God got overthrown, which really paints a cool picture for stories like Ezekiel, where he has his first vision. Um, He's in Babylon, right? Or on the outskirts of Babylon, and they've been taken captive, and he has this vision of God uh, coming to him from a distant land. And so while the people might have thought, oh no, our God is not with us in this foreign place because he's back in Israel, God was showing them, no, no, I can be with you. Um, anywhere you are, because I'm not bound by space or land or a temple or anything like that. 
Um, I don't want to discount that because it is really, really interesting how often God seems to have to teach his people that he can follow them into pagan lands and still work with them there. So it is really cool that God uh, shows his ability to work with these people in places that they find themselves, even if it's not, you know, ascending the mountain of the Lord or whatever. But in the story of Esther, it wasn't until she was in this foreign land, right? She had to be taken to this place. And then God worked incredible things with her. And in addition to this, even aside from just the place, we've been talking a lot about um, physicality, right? Going up a mountain or, you know, moving towards God in some way, whether that be a physical mountain or some barrier you have to cross, whatever. Um, she also had to act, right? She had to do the thing that she believed to be right. And in this, God acted. So not only did God not meet her where she was in the sense that he didn't leave her alone in her own homeland. He waited until she was taken to a foreign land to um, actually work through her. But also, it's not that she could just sit there and wait around. She had to do something, and then God could act through that action. So the story of Esther is a really good example of the idea of, yeah, sure, your life might be taking different turns. It might be busy. It might have all of these obstacles in the way. But that doesn't mean that every time God's just going to, you know, wait for you to just sit there and be still and then he comes to you. Like it kind of paints the picture like God is kind of this puppy dog that um, comes to us every time and we never have to take steps towards him. And I just I really reject that idea. Now, of course, God is loving and he is merciful and he does take steps towards us. Um, you know, it says that we love because he loved us first. So he took the first step. But with this post specifically, the reason that I feel so strongly about um, kind of refuting it, and I'm hoping that I'm doing it in a gracious way. I'm not angry at all. I just kind of want to clear up some misconception based on scripture. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this specifically is because this doesn't just make a claim that in the Bible, God can meet people where they are. Instead, it divides, I think, God's interaction with men and women in a slightly dishonest way to say that he interacts one way with men and one way with women. And I don't see that in scripture at all. But also, I think it gives this false sense of security that because your life is busy, you are not expected to take steps towards God, that he'll meet you where you are because he understands your busy schedule. And while I think he does understand, while I do think he shows grace to us, it is always still important that we are actively taking steps to move towards God and communicate with him. Because this should not be a one-sided relationship where just because we're busy, um, we should just expect that God comes to us. Because what happens then is we're busy, we don't feel connected with God, and then we can just suddenly put the blame on him if we don't feel connected because we're under this false premise that he is supposed to come to us when we're busy. And I think this is especially uh, slightly insidious because it does say this specifically for women. And right now, uh, women's issues are huge, really, really big topic. I don't want to uh, minimize that at all. But uh, we're kind of hyper aware of these issues. We are kind of hyper ready to accept something in favor of women. If it sounds favorable towards women, let me put it this way. If it sounds favorable towards women, we are very ready to accept that thing so that we are not on the side of being overbearing or unfair towards women. The problem is sometimes if it's not based in actual truth, 
we're actually doing an incredible disservice to women. In this post, for example, one of the problems could be the one that I just mentioned where suddenly women don't feel as close to God because they're accepting the premise that he should come to them. And the issue is if they don't feel close to God, they can start to blame him for not coming to them. And I think that's a problem. But the other thing is that this kind of implies that um, women just can't really handle the everyday stress of life as well as men can, and that they really don't have the time for God. And I just don't think that's true. And I think strong women everywhere would disagree with this. Um, Everyone's life can be stressful. Everyone's life has difficulties in it. But we are still commanded to make time for God. We're still commanded to draw close to him. It's not to say that he'll never approach us. He will and he does often. So I don't want to take that away at all. But let's not underestimate what women are capable of either. Sure, they have a lot of responsibilities. They have a lot of duties. And God is aware of that just as he is for the ones that men have. But the onus is still on us to take active steps towards communing with him, whether that is um, throughout our day or setting aside specific time just to talk with him and, and or study his Bible and hear from him. That's our responsibility as men and women, as Christians. Think about this. Matthew 11 says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't say, come to me, men who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But women, stay where you are. Um, I'll come to you when I get around to it. That is not what is said here. The responsibility is for us to approach God because he's already taken that first step for all of us. He has already made the way to him uh, accessible. And that is a lot of work. So in addition to all of this, if we just blindly accept posts like this, then we might forget that, God did meet us where we are. He became Emmanuel, God with us. Christ came as a man so that he could die, uh, forgive us of our sins, offer us uh, repentance and a way to eternal life and reconciliation with God so that we can approach him at any time. But he did make that first step. He does meet us where we are. And so let's not assume that he's got to take even more steps or that we have to take none towards him because I think that's just completely false. So... That's really all I have to say about this post. Um, I hope that I handled it graciously. Um, I guess you can let me know if I didn't. I'm sure I'll meet some sort of backlash. I'm I'm really not against women in this at all. I'm trying to be very pro-women and to not minimize the expectation we have for women because I believe that God interacts with both men and women all the time and in different ways. Um, But I think this post like this, not only does it misconstrue biblical truths and not really do a lot of good exegetical study, but the conclusions we draw from it can be really, really dangerous. And so um, if you've posted this before, I I would ask that maybe you consider some of what I've said here and um, maybe consider taking it down or offering your own refutation towards it now that we've kind of gone through this study and uh, shown all the premises that seem to not hold up against scripture. And if you're someone who's liked this post before, hopefully now this kind of clears away some of the cobwebs that, you know, are are presented well, like this, this post has good language and it seems to be very, like I said, pro-women. It seems to assert that a lot of study was done to come to these conclusions, but really it doesn't take a lot of study to see that they're, they're unfounded or they're based off of kind of a secondhand understanding of scripture or a desire for something to be true in scripture that really just isn't. 
And the last thing I'd like to say is just to offer some encouragement that when you come across uh, social media posts specifically about the Bible, do this kind of study yourself because um, all this stuff on face value can sound really good. The first time I read through it, I thought, okay, yeah, that's that's pretty nice. But it wasn't until I saw it posted more and more times that I thought, I'm going to look a little deeper into this to see um, just what holds up. And it, it really turns out that not much does. But you see biblical posts a lot. And it can be really easy to just kind of scroll past and read it, but you don't want something accidentally getting lodged in your head that are false premises that might lead you to false conclusions. So I just encourage you to do some study. Um, And as I always say at the end of these podcasts, uh, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. That's really what it's all about. So thank you guys so much for listening, and um, I'll see you next time.